Well, it's good to be with you all again. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Ben Bullard. I'm uh, uh, from Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville, and uh, it's always a joy uh, to be with you. Um, and today, I'd like to look at 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And as you're turning there, um, let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we can... Uh, study your word now. God, I pray that you would be with me, that you would help me uh, to uh, preach your word faithfully. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, we all would be given ears to hear and understand and also willing hearts uh, to obey and to live out uh, what we learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so what I'd like to do today is uh, actually begin a three-part series uh, so this will be part one, and then whenever the next two times I'm back with you, uh, that will be parts two and three. Um, and in this three-part series, uh, what I'd like to do is cover uh, the life of Elijah. Um, and, and of course, Elijah is often a, a favorite character from the Bible. Almost um, every child who grows up uh, going to Sunday school, here's the stories of Elijah because uh, they are such dynamic and exciting stories. Um, Elijah is a, a prophet who um, courageously stands alone against kings, soldiers, hundreds of false prophets. Um, he calls down fire from heaven uh, more than once, um, and he, he does amazing things like raise a boy to life. Uh, he parts the Jordan River, he multiplies uh, flour and oil. Um, God does amazing miracles through him. Uh, Elijah is also a somewhat mysterious figure. Uh, he, he's this sort of wilderness man uh, who's characteristically dressed in a coat of hair and a leather belt. Uh, multiple times in his life, he's out in the wilderness all alone. Um, he's also one of only two men in the entire Bible uh, who never dies. God, at the end of his earthly life, takes him to heaven in a chariot of fire. Uh, and in fact, this seems to somewhat lay the foundation for Malachi's later prophecy that you know, Elijah will return. Um, and then when Jesus comes, um, you know, and people are trying to figure out who is Jesus, you know, one of the rumors is that Jesus is Elijah, come back. And of course, Jesus makes clear that no, John the Baptist is this prophet in the spirit of Elijah who has come to prepare the way of the Lord. Um, but another thing about Elijah is, is he's a complex character. Um, on one hand, he is marked by incredible courage and faithfulness in a season when Israel is just turning their back on the Lord. Um, and yet, um, Elijah is also um, a man like us who suffers fear. Um, who suffers depression, who even at one time in his life prays that he might die. Um, so he is a complex, mysterious, but um, exciting character. And we're going to look at all these things as we go along. But um, what I want to do right at the outset is sort of address one big picture question um, that uh, really stands out because, as I said at the beginning, you know, you come to the, the life of Elijah and also the life of his successor, Elisha, and it is just one miracle after another. Uh, there is just this outpouring of miracles, and I want to stop and think for a minute, well, why is that? 
Uh, why are there so many miracles that God chooses to do in the lives of Elijah and Elisha? Um, and I bring that up because, you know, when I was young, um, you know, growing up, going to Sunday school, I, I sort of had this impression that, you know, the Bible is just the story of one miracle after another from beginning to end. And, and as I, you know, thought about that, you know, it's like, well, God did all these miracles back then, but why doesn't he seem to do miracles now? And, you know, I don't think I've, even to this day, I don't think I've ever seen a miracle. And, and I would, you know, be thinking, well, if God just wants me to believe, and he did all these miracles, then, well, why doesn't God do some miracles for me today? Um, and as I've studied that more, uh, one of the things I want to point out to you is actually the idea that the Bible is just, you know, chock full of miracles from beginning to end is actually not true. Um, if you were to, you know, make a timeline of history, and as you know, the whole history of the time the Bible covers, and every place where the Bible describes a miracle that God does, and you put a little dash, you would not find just a uniform list of dashes throughout all history. What you would find is that there are certain periods of concentrations of miracles. And, you know, God, of course, there, there's, you'll see some scattered all around, but there are these three particular periods where you would see concentrations of dashes. And the first of those uh, would be around 1500 BC. Uh, and this is about the time of Moses and Joshua. And of course, as you read the history of Moses and Joshua, there is an outpouring of miracles. There's the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, the sun standing still, and we could go on and on. Well, then you'll see a few others here and there, but then you'll see another concentration of lots of miracles, and it is the life, it's around 800, the 800s BC, during the lifetimes of Elijah and Elisha. And as we'll see as we go through, there are a lot of miracles right then. And then, you, know, you might see a few more here and there, but you will see a third concentration of miracles around 30 to 60 AD. And this is, of course, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Um, and, and one other layer to this, if, if we were to think about, there's miracles in general, but then specifically, if we were to think what about miracles that are actually done through the hands of men? And what I mean by that is there's miraculous things God does, like, you know, Sarah, Abraham's wife, conceives at the age of like 89. And that's certainly a miracle. But that wasn't brought about through the hands of Abraham or any other men. I mean, man, that was just God doing a miracle. And it's a little bit different than some of the miracles that, say, Moses or Elijah do, where you know, Moses is this human instrument who raises his staff and then the Red Sea parts. Or Elijah is on Mount Carmel, as we'll see today. He prays to the Lord and God sends down fire from heaven. And he is doing miracles you know, in a special way through the hands of men. And I think you will see an even more pronounced sense in which these miracles are sort of concentrated around these three particular periods of biblical history if we look at miracles done through the hands of men. And I bring this up because I want to ask the question, is there anything 
that these three periods have in common that might help us understand why. I mean, God who can do anything he wants, whenever he wants, who does miracles according to his pleasure, seems in his wisdom to have raised up men and through them to have performed, you know, these overwhelming concentrations of miracles in these particular periods. Is there any connection we could find? And I would suggest to you that there is one. Think for a moment about the time of Moses and Joshua and the fact that that coincides with the giving of the Torah or the law, the first five books of the Bible. Right? That, that was the foundation of God's word is given through Moses during that time. Then jump forward and think about the time of Jesus and the apostles. And of course, what do we have as a result of Jesus and the apostles? We have the entire New Testament. Right? That period corresponds to the giving of the New Testament, the culmination and fulfillment of the Bible. And now let's think, what about the days of Elijah and Elisha? And what's interesting is immediately following Elijah and Elisha, though they themselves, they didn't write down anything that we have a record of, but immediately after them, we have what are known as the writing prophets. Prophets like Amos and Hosea and then Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, prophets who not only prophesied a great deal, but in the providence of God were led to actually write down their prophecies so that not only their generation would know these things, but the, so that all successive generations might have a written record of God's revelation. Um, in fact, it was probably Jeremiah who wrote the book of Kings by which we know about men like Elijah and Elisha, as we will study today. Um, and basically what these prophets, these writing prophets do is they tell us, you know, they're writing to Israel and they say, look, you have apostatized, you've been unfaithful, and because of that, God is going to take you off to exile because of your unfaithfulness, but God in his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham and in faithfulness to his promises to David, God is going to send a Messiah who is going to come, who is going to bring about God's kingdom, who is going to bring about salvation for his people, judgment upon his enemies, and is going to usher in this wonderful everlasting kingdom that ultimately will result in a new heavens and a new earth, in a new Eden, and God is going to set all things right. And in other words, what I'm saying is that you have the law, we have the New Testament, and right there, the third most significant period of new revelation from God is this period of the prophets. And with each of these three periods where God is revealing new revelation that he intends for all people, for all generations, coinciding with that, there seem to be these periods where God is Sending for, raising up men to do amazing miracles. And what I am drawing from that is simply the point that God intends for miracles to point us to His Word. Miracles are intended to point us to Scripture. They are intended to show us that God, that Yahweh is the one true God, and that His Word is is 
the truth. Um, and beyond that, the miracles themselves, they're like little foretastes of the very message that his word is proclaiming. Um, his, his miracles anticipate the judgment that God will bring upon his enemies, the salvation that God will bring in rescuing his people from sin and death, and the miracles themselves, they anticipate this new creation when God will reverse the Genesis curse and bring about this new Eden and this everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And what all this means is that, you know, as we go back and we're here where we're going to study the Old Testament, we're going to look at the life of Elijah. Um, you know, don't sit there like I did when I was a teenager and think, oh, that's nice that God did all these miracles back then. Well, then I want to see some miracles now and then I'll believe. No, we need to go back and read these words and understand that the very purpose of God's working miracles is to point us to His Word. And that those miracles back then were given every bit as much for you and me as they were for them. They were given to confirm the Word of God. uh, To show us that God's Word is utterly reliable because He is the one true God and He is a faithful God. Um. And, and this is why Jesus himself says, um, you know, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs. And if anyone will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will he believe if one were to rise from the dead. You see, if miracles themselves will never change someone's heart who will not believe God's word. Um, So let's, with that in mind, turn to begin looking at the life of Elijah and and remembering what God has done, and may this stir our hearts to trust him more. Um, All right, so as I said, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Uh, This is a uh, relatively long section of text, so I'm not going to have time to read um, everything. I'll have to do some summarizing as we go along. Um, But what I want you to see is that in keeping with what I've said already, uh, the main theme of this passage of Scripture is Yahweh's word and Baal's silence. We have the one true God, Yahweh, who speaks and confirms what he says, and there's the false God, Baal, who is silent. Um, Now, this section, it begins with the proclamation of a drought. And then about three and a half years later, it ends with the Lord sending rain. Um, so picking up in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, uh, we read that Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Now, just to set the context a little bit, Ahab is the king of Israel. So this is during the time of the, time of the divided kingdom. And Ahab is the seventh of 19 kings who will rule over northern uh, Israel, uh, none of whom will follow Yahweh. And Ahab himself is worse than all six of the kings who preceded him. And he married uh, this, really a witch, named Jezebel, who is a worshiper of Baal, 
uh, who was the Canaanite god of weather. And Elijah, as I said already, you know, he seems to be this wilderness man. Uh, we don't know what Ahab knew of him before this point, but he comes up and he pronounces judgment in the name of Yahweh against Ahab and his storm god. And Elijah says, as Yahweh lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So notice, first of all, that God is not only not going to send rain in judgment on Ahab and his sin, but God tells him verbally, that this is what he's doing. And secondly, can you imagine if it didn't rain for years? I mean, just imagine the devastation. No rain, no dew for years. Now, we don't know whether Ahab took this seriously or not, um, but we do know that right after Elijah pronounces this, it says in verse 2 and following, the word of the Lord came to him, and Elijah is led down to this little brook um, called Kareth, and it's, it's out in the wilderness east of the Jordan, and he's by this little stream, and, and there he is to drink from the stream, and God tells him that he has commanded the ravens to feed him there. And there's a beautiful picture of here's Elijah just by this brook, and the ravens bring him food and meat every morning and evening of just the faithful provision of God providing just what Elijah needs right when he needs it. Um, It should remind us that Jesus tells us, pray to the Lord, give us today our daily bread. God so often provides just what we need right when we need it. Um, Well, as time goes on, of course, it's not raining and this little brook dries up. And it's at this point in verse 8 and following, that the word of the Lord again comes to Elijah, and God tells Elijah to arise and go to Zarephath of Sidon. And this is ironic, because where is, you know, Baal worshipped? Where is Jezebel from? Well, she's from Sidon. You know, God is sending his prophet right into the very heart of the territory of Baal, right to the very homeland of this wicked queen over Israel, And Elijah is to go there, and God tells him, I have commanded a widow to feed you there. And so Elijah gets up, and he goes to uh, Zarephath and Sidon, and he gets there, and and the famine has hit there hard. You know, this famine is is widespread, um, and people are struggling. And when he gets there, he sees a widow who's come out from the gate of the city, and she's gathering sticks. And Elijah calls to her and he he asks her if she would bring him some water. And she turns to go get the water. And right as she's leaving, Elijah calls out again and he says, And would you also bring me a little morsel of bread? And at this, the woman turns to him and swears to him. And she says, I am gathering these sticks so that I can go home to my son. And we are going to cook a little bit of bread and we're going to eat it, and then we're going to die because it's the last food we have left. That is how severe this famine is. She's saying, look, I can't help you. And then Elijah says to her, he says, go and do as you you have said, but first make a little morsel of bread and bring it to me. And then go and make some for you and your son. 
I mean, this is, give me first the last bit of bread you have to this, yeah, to a stranger. I mean, this is just an audacious request. And then he says, he gives a reason. He says, because thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that Yahweh sends rain upon the earth. In other words, Elijah to this Canaanite woman, I don't know if, I mean, maybe she's heard of Yahweh. Presumably she has been raised her whole life to worship Baal. And now Elijah comes and he tells her, basically, give away your life. Give your last bit of sustenance to me and then Yahweh will give you life. Yahweh will miraculously provide for you. And the question is, will this Canaanite woman believe the word of Yahweh? And whether she confidently believed or whether she just recognized she had absolutely no other hope and she says, I know Baal can't help me and so I'm just going to trust in the one promise I have. Amazingly, it says in verse 15, it says in verse, um, I think 14, 15, she goes and she takes this cake and she goes and she does as Elijah said and she brings him this um, morsel of bread and then she goes back and you can imagine it's like, you know, she's got this jar of flour and this jug of oil and it feels like it's empty and she just pours out a little more and just enough comes out to make another cake for her and her son and they eat and then they wake up the next day and it still feels empty and she pours out just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and enough comes out and they eat for that day. And then the next day they go and it still feels empty. And day after day after day, it simply doesn't run out. And in fact, we learn that Elijah moves in and he lives with them. And she, verse 15 and 16, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And what an amazing, I mean, every single day they have this miraculous reminder of the faithfulness of God to his word. Every single day. And friends, this, this story, it reminds me of what Jesus says to us. When in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, he said, Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Right? Just as God calls to this Canaanite woman to trust his word enough to give away her last bit of food, and God says, if you do that, then I will give you all the food you need to survive until the end of the famine. Jesus comes and tells us, follow me. And that may mean leaving everything behind. That may feel like losing your very life. And yet Jesus promises when you lose your life, you will actually save it because I will give you real life. I will provide everlasting life. Will we trust his word? Well, the, the story continues. And picking up in chapter, verse 17 of chapter 17, uh, we find that um, God tests the faith of this widow. 
She's, she's trusted the Lord. She has this daily reminder of God's faithfulness to His Word. But then a test and a trial comes. And, and we read that um, her son became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He dies. And at this point, rather than trusting God, the, the widow is so upset that she blames Elijah. And in verse 18, she says, what, have you, what do you have against me? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. In other words, she, she thinks that by being close to this holy man, um, that she's been brought close to the holy God, and now he is punishing her for her sin. Well, Elijah seems equally surprised by this turn of events, and he simply responds to her by saying, give me your son. And he takes the child and he goes to his own bedroom and he lays the, the boy on his bed and he cries out in prayer to the Lord. And Elijah says in verse 20, O Yahweh, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then three times he stretches himself upon the child and says, Oh Yahweh, let this child's life come into him again. And after three times, the boy revives. And God hears the prayer of Elijah. And God, according to his almighty power, raises this dead boy to life. And Elijah takes the child and delivers him back to his mother. And friends, just consider for a moment the kindness of God. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like this woman's faith is tested, and she fails the test, and yet God in His kindness revives her son. You know, here she is thinking, you know, God is just, He's drawn near through Elijah, and now He's punishing me for my sin. And even though she responds poorly and is accusing Elijah, God, in his mercy and his kindness, raises her son back to life. And it's like God is saying, you can trust me, and I care about you. And, and friends, what an encouragement that should be for us, because the reality is we too are going to face trials of various kinds. You know, there's going to be times we don't understand why did God let this happen. And there will be times when we... Um, we'll respond negatively. And we're not going to trust God the way we should. And, and, and this is just an encouraging example of how God is patient with us and how God is kind. And, you know, in this case, He heals the woman's son. And, and whether He heals us or not, God is always working all things together for good uh, for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. And then notice the result of this in this woman's life. After the son, her son is restored, um, look what she says in verse 24. She says to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And friends, remember what we said at the beginning. God's word or God's miracles point us to His Word. And here this woman has just seen the miraculous power of God. 
And she recognizes, now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know that my God that I learned about growing up, Baal, he is a silent God. He doesn't rescue, he doesn't save, he doesn't speak, he doesn't fulfill his word, but Yahweh is the God who speaks and rescues and his word is truth. Now, let's uh, turn to chapter 18 and um, we find that in chapter 18 verse 1, after many days, the word of the Lord again comes to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah gets up and he goes back to Samaria to find Ahab. And in verses 2 through 16, um, we read about this account of Elijah meeting uh, Obadiah. So uh, what's going on in Samaria is the famine and the drought is so severe um, that Ahab and Obadiah, I mean, they're just trying to keep the livestock alive. They're going out looking for water, and Obadiah is one of Ahab's officials. And as they're out looking, you know, Ahab comes and bumps into Obadiah. And uh, I'm not going to look at this section in detail, um, but we find out two important things from the exchange between Elijah and Obadiah. Um, the first is that while during these three years Elijah has been gone, uh, Jezebel and Ahab have been hunting down and killing the prophets of Yahweh. Um, Obadiah actually fears the Lord and has been hiding prophets in caves. Um, but the second thing we find out is that Ahab has also been hunting all over for Elijah. Obadiah's like, look, he has hunted all through Israel. He has looked in every other kingdom and nation searching for you. Um, now, we don't know if Ahab took Elijah seriously when Elijah initially proclaimed this drought, but certainly after three and a half years of no rain, you know, Ahab remembers that Elijah said it wasn't going to rain again until Elijah said so, and he is desperately looking everywhere for Elijah, and he can't find him anywhere. And again, ironically, the one place in the sovereignty of God Ahab never seems to have thought to look was Zarephath and Sidon, right where his wife is from, in the heart of Baal territory. Uh, and so, after this exchange with Obadiah, um, Obadiah goes and gets Ahab. This is in verse 17. And Ahab is brought to Elijah. And as soon as Ahab sees Elijah, for the first time in about three and a half years, Ahab says, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah responds, I have not troubled Israel but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. And I just want to pause briefly there and point out that this should be a grave warning to us about the self-deceptiveness of sin. Because somehow, in Ahab's mind, Elijah is the troubler of Israel. Somehow, Elijah is the one to blame for this drought. Somehow, he has interpreted Elijah declaring on behalf of Yahweh a drought as if, well, this is Elijah's fault, rather than recognizing, no, I'm the one who has been sinning and therefore has brought the judgment of God upon myself and my nation, and therefore I need to repent. 
And we look, and it is just ridiculous. And we shake our head and think, how could that ever happen? And yet, the reality is that we too are prone to blaming others for the consequences of our own sin. Like, like Ahab, we as human beings, as sinful human beings, we tend to be hypocritically self-justifying and others condemning. And thereby, we, it's like we see the world through these warped glasses. And we fail to realize that so often, you know, the things that happen in our life are consequences of our sin. They're not somebody else's fault. Um, and God in His wisdom has given us His Word so that we don't just have to blindly interpret the significance of droughts and famines and miracles or any other acts of providence in our lives. Right? God has given us His Word to show us Himself to show us ourselves and our sin and to call us to repentance and faith and to show us the way of salvation. Uh, so let, let's be warned about the danger um, of blaming others for the consequences of our own sin. Now, finally, we're going to look at this story about Elijah on Mount Carmel. So after he, he sees Ahab and Ahab blames him and he says, no, Ahab, this is the result of your sin, in verses 19 and following, Elijah basically throws down a challenge to see who the real troubler of Israel is. And so he tells Ahab, okay, go and, and gather all Israel, gather the 450 prophets of Baal, gather the 400 prophets of Asherah, all to me at Mount Carmel. And so Ahab goes and he gathers all the people and Elijah is there on Mount Carmel and all the people gather together. And Elijah looks in verse 21 out to all the people of Israel and he asks them this question. He says, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long are you going to go limping half-heartedly after Yahweh and then limping after Baal um, rather than serving the Lord with all your heart? If Yahweh is God, then follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow Him. And yet the people look back at Elijah and do not answer him a word. They're silent. And so then Elijah, standing alone, verse 22, he says, I, I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And he says, therefore, we'll have a test. And so we'll have two bulls. And we'll make two altars, but we're not going to put any fire under either altar. So you Baal prophets, go and make your altar, and I will make an altar to the Lord, and then you call on your God, and then I will call on Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. And the prophets of Baal hear this, and they think, oh, that sounds like a, a good plan. They're confident. They genuinely believe in Baal. Um, and so they go, and they make their altar, and they begin to call out to the, on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But it says there was no voice, and no one answered. And then by noon, verse 27, Elijah begins to mock them. And Elijah says, Cry aloud, for he is a god. You know, maybe he's meditating or relieving himself or off on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and needs to be awakened. And then the Baal prophets respond by only crying louder 
and even cutting themselves with lances. You know, they think that they can get the attention of their God by mutilating themselves, by crying louder to, to get His attention. And yet verse 29 says, after they have cried out into the middle of the afternoon and they're surely exhausted, it says, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal remained silent. Well, then Elijah steps forward and he has the altar of the Lord built and he takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and he builds the altar and he has the oxen laid on it and then he has them dig a trench around it and he says go get some water and they must have gone down to you know the salt sea to get the water because it was a drought and so they go get the water they dump it on there and then he goes go do it again and they go and get more water and then he says do it again and so the water is just covering the wood and everything it's filling the trench and then Elijah in verse 36 he prays a simple prayer and he says oh Yahweh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. And by the way, that tells us this showdown was not Elijah's idea. He is doing all these things at the word of God. And then he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then, verse 38, it says, Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And at this, the people fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh answers by fire. And then Elijah commands the, that the people seize the prophets of Baal and they're taken down by the brook and they are executed and this is in accordance with the Deuteronomic law, Deuteronomy chapter 13. And then, in verse 41, Elijah goes and he tells Ahab, he says, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. And then Elijah returns to the top of Mount Carmel and he begins to pray. And he prays and he sends his servant, Go look out to the sea. And the servant says, I don't see anything. And he prays again and he sends a servant and I still don't see anything. And he does this seven times. And then on the seventh time, the servant goes out and he sees this little black cloud. It's kind of like a hand coming up from the water. And Elijah immediately goes down to Ahab and he says, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And immediately, for the first time in three and a half years, the sky grows black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And God sends the rain uh, to heal and bring life to this dry and barren land. And so friends, we have begun this story with the proclamation of a drought. We have ended it with the sending of rain. And what I want you to see is that really the main point of this passage of Scripture is that Yahweh is the one true God and His Word is true. 
You see, it was by the word of the Lord that the sky was shut up and the storm god Baal was powerless to stop him. It was by the word of the Lord that Elijah went to the brook Kareth and was fed by ravens. It was by the word of the Lord the ravens fed him there. It was by the word of the Lord that Elijah rose and went to Zarephath. It was by the word of the Lord that a widow fed him there. It was by the word of the Lord that the jar of flour was not spent and the jug of oil never ran dry. And then, after Yahweh displays his power and kindness by raising the widow's son from the dead, she declares, Now I know that you, Elijah, are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Then it was by the word of the Lord that Elijah returned and presented himself to Ahab. Um, and it was by the word of the Lord that Elijah sets up this showdown with the prophets of Baal. And what's the outcome of the showdown? Well, Baal is deafeningly silent, right? There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. But Yahweh reveals himself as the God who answers by fire. Yahweh is the one true God. He is the God who answers, the God who speaks, and the God who fulfills His word. And then, after answering by fire, which brought about judgment upon the false prophets who led people away from the word of the Lord, Yahweh fulfills His promise to send rain, bringing life and salvation to a dry and barren land. And so friends, what I want us to see is that these miracles, number one, they are in and of themselves foretastes of the coming judgment and salvation that God has promised, but they also point us to the words of the prophets, right? Which they immediately come before. You know, God is saying, I'm the true God, I am speaking, listen to me. And then he raises up prophets to declare his plan and his purpose, and these prophets themselves, what do they declare? But that God is going to bring about the judgment of exile, but this same God is going to send His Messiah to bring about final and eschatological salvation and judgment and this everlasting kingdom in a new creation where righteousness dwells. And brothers and sisters, for us, you know, we can look back and see how God has already been fulfilling that very word because this Messiah has come. Jesus arrived and He Himself is the final and climactic Word from God who has accomplished that salvation through His death and resurrection. And He has promised that He will return to consummate His everlasting kingdom. And friends, what that means for us is that we can't sit back like I did and think, okay, God, you know, I'll... I'll believe you when I see some miracles. No, God has already confirmed the truthfulness of His Word. He has already spoken finally and climactically. He has already shown us the way of salvation. And so friends, the, the question is, how will we respond? Right? And if, if you're here and you are not a Christian, um, know that these things are written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ and have life in His name. Uh, no matter how much you have sinned, God's Word is true. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Yahweh is the one true God and His Word is true. But then secondly, especially for you know, those of us who believe in Christ and, and we want to follow Christ, 
I think we should be challenged especially by Elijah's own challenge to Israel on Mount Carmel. When he asked them, how long will you falter between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. And brothers and sisters, let us, as we think about these words, about the mighty acts of God, about his faithfulness to his word, about his power to raise from the dead, about his kindness and provision, let us be challenged to consider how long will we falter between two opinions? Um, you know, we can shake our heads at Israel at, you know, they're sort of limping along in their service of Yahweh and tolerating Baal worship. Um, but we can do the same thing when we give place to the gods of money or the, the God of comfort or the God of popularity or the gods of sports and entertainment or even if we make gods out of friends and family. Uh, you see how easily we can begin to elevate God's gifts to the place of God the giver. and How, how quickly our hearts can grow divided and, and we can be lukewarm in our Christianity, not really putting Jesus first. Uh, and so let's be reminded, look at Elijah. He had to stand alone. Literally the whole nation is standing against him and yet he stands firm in his loyalty to the Lord. Remember this widow who literally had to give up her last meal in her faith in the Lord, trusting him to provide. And let's be reminded of the kind of radical discipleship that we are called to. And, and let's know that God is faithful. His word is sure. He calls us to trust Him, but He's trustworthy. And this God is a God who is powerful enough to provide for whatever we need, who is so kind that even when we try to follow and we trip and we fall and we fall short, that he comes alongside us in our weakness. And he's a God who loves us. A God who has demonstrated his love most clearly of all in giving his own son to die for us on the cross. Uh, so let's not falter between two opinions, but let's serve him with all our heart. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have confirmed your word. We thank you that you have fulfilled your word through your son Jesus and that we can look forward to the day when he will return. And God, we pray that you would enable us now uh, to worship you with all our heart. Not to falter between two opinions, uh, but to be undivided in our loyalty to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.